Good morning, everyone. So good to see you all today. It's good to see more of the family coming back together after kind of being scattered all summer. And uh, so if it's the first time you've been here in a while, we're uh, glad you are here. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 7. Last week I talked about the heart of Jesus and Specifically, we looked at Matthew eleven twenty nine, which I pointed out is the only place in the four Gospels where Jesus tells us what his heart is like. And if you missed that message last week, I would strongly encourage you to go back and, and listen to that because knowing Jesus' heart for you is key to living the life that he desires for us. Knowing his heart absolutely changes everything. And because it is so important, I didn't think it'd be a good idea for us to just kind of hit that in in one message and then move on to something else. I mean, we really need something uh, like that to to sink in and and meditate on it and and chew on it for a little while. And so today we're going to learn a little bit more about Jesus's heart for us um, and really looking at it through something that he is, is doing now. This is his heart in action. So Hebrews 7, we're going to start with the text here. The writer is showing in this chapter how the priests in the Old Testament were shadows pointing us to Jesus and explaining how Jesus being the ultimate high priest is so much better than those human priests. And so with that in mind, we're going to start in verse 23. So I'm going to ask you to stand once more. In honor of God's word, Hebrews seven twenty three, the writer says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. God, so good to be here, Lord, with your people, singing songs of praise to you. Lord, getting into your word, hearing what it is that you want to say to us. Lord, what you want to reveal to us. And God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. That you would give us eyes to see, a heart to receive all that you have for us today. Jesus, would you draw us closer to you? And I pray, God, that we would leave here today just more in awe and more in love with you than we have ever been. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Bible teaches that there are essentially three stages, three parts to our salvation. And you'll, you'll see throughout the New Testament, it'll, it'll refer to this, these three things with, with three kind of big words, justification, sanctification, and glorification. The first one, being justified, that is what happens the moment that we put our trust in Jesus as the only way to be made right with God. And in that very moment, we are instantly declared righteous in the sight of God fully exonerated in the court of heaven based solely on what Jesus did for us. A good way to remember what it means to be justified is to think of it as it means God sees me just as if I'd never sinned, justified. The second part, being sanctified, 
is the process of growing more into who God created us to be. It's us becoming more and more like Jesus, growing in spiritual maturity. And then the third part, being glorified, that's what happens either when we are called from this world to heaven or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. It is God's completing the work that he started in us. Now, like I said, we come across each of those three big words in the New Testament, but you also seeing those three different stages referred to in another way. Sometimes it's referred to as saved, being saved, and will be saved, each corresponding to those three. And so when the New Testament talks about being saved, it does not mean that we lose our salvation and have to be justified all over Again, no, justification is a one-time thing that lasts for eternity. Being saved is referring to that continual process of growing in spiritual maturity. And then when it says will be saved, it's not talking about being justified at some point in the future. It's talking about that third part, the, the glorified the, or everything that God did in us being brought to full completion. Now, I say all that because it's important to understand a lot of this text that we just read. Verse 25 says that Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near. The NIV says, save completely. And I love how the King James and the ESV translates it. They say that he is able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean? Well, it's talking about Jesus is always something that he is always doing. And so it is a continual ongoing thing, which means it's referring to sanctification, that second part. And at the same time, ensuring that he will bring us to the third part, to the full completion. This verse right here is one of the most comforting verses in the whole Bible because it assures that those who are truly saved are never going to lose that. But there's something else in here that I really want us to look at this morning. You know, when we talk about the gospel, for the most part, we're talking about something that happened in the past. What Jesus has done through his life, death, resurrection, burial, and ascension. We preach about what Jesus has done. We sing songs about what he has done. We tell others about what he has done. And so we know a lot about Jesus and what he did in the past. But what is he doing now? That's not something that we really talk a lot about in church. But the good news is we don't have to speculate about it or or guess at what he's doing because verse 25 tells us. He always lives to make intercession for them. And so what is Jesus doing right now at this very minute? He's interceding for us. What does that mean? Well, intercession in general terms means that a third party comes between two others and makes a case to one on behalf of the other. It'd be like a parent going to a teacher on behalf of their child. That parent is interceding for their child or an agent going before the owner of a sports franchise on behalf of an athlete who is their client. 
And so then what does it mean for Jesus to intercede for us? I mean, hasn't he already accomplished all that was required for us to be made right with God? Yes, he has. I mean, you've probably heard me say several times now that there is nothing that we can gain from God that Jesus hasn't already fully secured for us. And so if that's true, then that means that Jesus is not pleading for something that hasn't already been done. And so the first point, if you're following along there in the notes, explains it. Jesus interceding on our behalf means that he applies in real time what he accomplished at the cross. He applies in real time what he accomplished on the cross. The question then is why would he need to do that? Well, justification is probably the most counterintuitive aspect of the gospel, meaning that it goes completely against our natural way of thinking and operating. The fact that we are declared right with God, not once we get our act together, but once we fall and surrender to the realization that we never will. It goes completely against our nature to believe that we are fully exonerated before God without having anything to claim that we did as a reason why. Our natural hearts are wired in such a way that we constantly drift from believing that. There are moments of every day that our thoughts and our actions do not line up with that truth. Moments where we don't really believe that we are justified, declared holy and right with God. I mean, am I wrong? Or am I the only one that happens to? I know I'm not because a lot of the counseling that I do is with people who are really struggling with believing whether or not they are truly saved. There are so many people who just seem to constantly battle with this and then think there's something wrong for having that struggle. No, there's nothing wrong at all. That is a completely natural thing. Every born-again human wavers in that at times. And I would say that there is something wrong with you if, if you don't struggle with that. If you never have a heart, if you were to say to me, you know what, I believe that from the get-go. I don't have any problem at all fully believing that I'm justified before God. Never. Now, I would say there's... Three things that could be going on. Number one, you have no idea what justification really means. Number two, you're lying. Or number three, you're not a human. (laughs) Because justification goes completely against the way that we are wired as humans. That's why I say I love the way King James in the ESV translates it. He saves to the uttermost. No matter how it's translated, the word used in the original Greek is the word pantelos, which means complete, perfect. So here's what it means for him to save us to the uttermost because he intercedes for us. Not only do we waver in our belief that we are fully justified with God, but we also have pockets of our lives that we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God fully reaches. We say we believe that we are totally forgiven, but I think it'd be more accurate to say that what we really believe is that we're forgiven for the most part. 
That's because every one of us, there's that deep, dark part of our lives that seems so disgusting, so ugly, so irredeemable and beyond recovery. He saves to the uttermost means that God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the deepest, darkest crevices of our soul. Those deep hidden places where we feel most shamed and defeated. Some of you right now know exactly that place I'm talking about. It's a place that's haunted you for a long time. And if that is you, I really want you to hear what I'm about to say next. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you right at the front that it's going to sound too good to be true. But as Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. Those places are what Jesus loves most. Those places are what he loves most. Goes back to what I talked about last week. How his heart is drawn there. I mean, we see when he was here on earth, who was it that he was drawn to? Who was it that he sought out, that he went after? It was the rejected, the diseased, the foul, the ugly, the most disgusting ones there were. Those are the ones that Jesus was drawn to. And then we learned that his own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and elevated by showing his grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, healing, and forgiving those places where we need it the most. He loves those places in us because those are the places that he gets to do his best work and receives the most glory from when he does. He loves us and he saves us to the uttermost because he knows us to the uttermost. And he applies what he accomplished, what he purchased with his blood to every single part of us and in us. Even those places that we think nobody else knows about, he's there. He's drawn to those places. How do we know that? Because he tells us right there in his word. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And why or how? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. It is because he is right now at this very moment interceding. Right now in real time, he is applying all that he accomplished. He knows you struggle with believing that you are fully made right. He knows that you struggle with that deep, dark, ugly part of you. And so he is always bringing the victory that he won before the father to be applied in those places. So our second Corinthians 12, nine says his strength is perfected in our weakness. Second Timothy two thirteen. when we are faithless, he remains faithful. His interceding for us are those two verses in action. So the next point in your notes, Christ continually intercedes for us in heaven because we continually fail on earth. 
continually intercedes for us in heaven because we continually fell on earth. Some people seem to believe that salvation means that all of their sins were forgiven up to the point of salvation, but then any sins that we commit after that, we've got to do something about ourselves. But that's not right. Him interceding for us means that he is constantly applying the forgiveness that he purchased in full every time we fall. Picture a glider being pulled by an airplane up in the sky. There's a long cable attached to that airplane that's hooked onto that glider, but at some point, once they get to a certain altitude, that plane's going to release that cable, and the plane is then left on its own to make it safely back to the ground. Jesus is the plane, and we are the glider, but he never disengages the cable. That cable is him interceding for us. It's what keeps us attached to him. He never lets go, wishing us well, hoping that we'll be able to glide our way to heaven. No, he carries us all the way. How do we know that? Because he saves forever those who draw near since he always lives to make intercession for them. Forever and always. Pretty strong words. Probably heard it said that Jesus interceding for us means that, that he prays for us. And yeah, I mean, he does. Not only is his strength perfected in our weakness, not only is he faithful when we are faithless, but he is also praying for us even when our prayer life stinks. And yeah, it is a comforting thought that Jesus is praying for me. But Jesus praying for us and Jesus interceding us are not the same thing. Him interceding means far more than just praying. He's not saying, I'm praying for you. He is saying, I'm for you. I'm with you. He is standing in your place as if you were standing before God yourself, receiving all of his heart for you, the same that he has for Jesus. And that is intercession at its best. Now, here's something important to understand about this. For Jesus to intercede for us before the Father does not mean that the Father feels something different for us than Jesus does. And it's what I talked about last week. Jesus is not the nice version of God. They're the same. They have the same heart. For Jesus to intercede on our behalf does not mean that he is asking the Father for something that he wouldn't normally do. Nor does it mean, as I've heard some say, that he is begging the Father to hold his wrath back from us. That can't be true because Jesus absorbed all of his wrath for us on the cross. And so there's nothing left for him to hold back. And so that means the next point. Jesus' intercession does not reflect the coolness of the Father, but simply the warmth of the Son. Like I said, it, 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 it reveals, it reflects his heart for us. And then right under that, the Father's deepest delight is to say yes 
to Jesus' pleading on our behalf. His deepest delight is to say yes. Jesus is not asking for something that the Father is reluctant to give. No, he is delighted to give it. That means that these two are working together for us. I want us to look at another verse that really speaks to this same truth about what Jesus is doing now. 1 John 2, 1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, now stop right there. This verse right here is probably the most dangerous verse in the Bible for religion. And again, it goes totally against our default way of thinking and our natural bent toward a religious mindset. If we did not know how the rest of this verse went, how do you think most people would finish that? And if anyone sins, fill in the blank. More than likely, it would be something like, if anyone sins, you better repent. If anyone sins... You better do something to to make up for that. You better feel a lot of sorrow over that and vow that you're going to do better. That's how religion would finish it. But look at what it actually says. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. What? John doesn't say that we better do anything. He just reminds us that we have an advocate in that moment. The word advocate in the original text means one who pleads another's case before a judge. John is saying that when you sin, it's not remember what you better do, but remember who you are. Remember whose you are. You have an advocate who rises up and defends your case, proving your innocence, not based on anything that you have or haven't done, but based solely on what he has done for you. I want to go back to that deep, dark, shameful place I was talking about earlier. What do you think is Jesus' attitude toward that ugly, sinful, shameful part of you that you keep hidden from everyone else. That dependence on alcohol. That temper and the fits of rage that you tend to fly into and are so embarrassed about after the fact. The bitterness that you carry around in your heart the shady business dealings, the habitual use of pornography. Who is Jesus in that moment? Not who is he once you conquer that sin, but who is he in the midst of it? John says he's an advocate who stands up and silences all accusers. And listen, here's the key, the next point. He stands and speaks in our defense when we sin, not not after we get over it. When we sin, not after we get over it. I know that sounds wrong, doesn't it? 
I mean, but the verse clearly says that. There's no other way to interpret that here. If anyone sins, not after you have sinned and then have asked for forgiveness and jumped through all these hoops to make up for it. No, in that moment. Now you see why I say this is such a dangerous verse, especially in the face of religion. I mean, some of you are probably now thinking, uh, that can't really be right, can it? Probably thinking, you can't preach that. And you're right, there's a lot of churches I can't preach this in. At least half the churches in this town I probably get fired from if I preach that. And why? Because so many of us automatically go, people are going to take that and use that as an excuse to live however they want to. Will they? I mean, one thing I've come to learn that people don't need a license to sin. They do a pretty good job without one. Someone is not going to purposefully sin because of this. They're purposefully going to sin because that's already in their heart. The gospel really is that scandalous, y'all. I can't remember who it was, but one of the great preachers of old who said, if you aren't being accused of giving people a license to sin, then you aren't preaching the real gospel. Yeah, some people will. I'll be honest. Some people will use the grace of God as an excuse to sin. No doubt about it. As in, it's okay, I'm forgiven. It's okay. John says, I have an advocate. You know what? John knew that people were going to do that. The New Testament talks about it. It calls it licentiousness. And now it's those who don't know God that do that. But did that keep John from writing this? No, because it's not that message that would cause people to do that. It's their own wicked heart that causes them to do that. I mean, the reason why we're so hesitant to preach full grace is that we're so dang concerned about everyone else's behavior. Jesus, his main goal wasn't come to change behavior. It was to change hearts. What we do on the outside is a reflection of that. And his grace is the only thing that fully transforms a heart. Yeah, the grace of the gospel is risky. It is. But it is worth the risk that someone may take it wrong and use it for their own indulgence. Why? Because of what the message of grace does do to those who have ears to hear. To those who have the spirit of God living inside of them and are aware of their own sinful condition. When we hear the gospel preached in such a way that it sounds too good to be true. It's like something jumps inside of us. Something comes alive. It's like we are hearing a sound that we have been waiting to hear all our lives. And it draws us closer to Jesus, not closer to our sin. And leads us to repentance. That's what it does. That is the power of it. I mean, Paul addresses this same thing in Romans. In chapter 5, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then he asks the question that he knows everybody's going to think by hearing that. Does that mean we should continue in sin so that grace can abound? And in chapter 6, he says no. And essentially says those who are born again won't. That's not how those who have the spirit of God in them are going to respond to that. 
Another argument some would have against this is they say that it minimizes sin. It makes it sound like sin isn't that big of a deal to Jesus. But the truth is, the last point there in the notes, grace doesn't minimize sin. It magnifies Jesus. It doesn't make light of sin. It makes much of what Jesus accomplished. It doesn't ignore what sin does when we commit it. It points us to what Jesus is doing when we commit it. I mean, this is what this favored disciple of Jesus, the one who was closer to Jesus than all the rest, this is what he was doing here when he wrote 1 John 2, 1. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he's telling us that was the whole point of his letter, so that we would not live a life of sin. He knew how dangerous and destructive sin is. He knew that sin goes completely against who we are in Christ and how much it belittles a holy God that we claim to love. John doesn't minimize sin at all. He desperately wants believers to stay away from it. And so he then says, but if anyone sins, meaning he's not naive, he doesn't want us to, but he knows we're human and we're going to. And so what is he going to say in order to, to keep us from it, to minimize the chance that we do that? He takes our eyes off of our sin and off of us and onto Jesus. We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. He's not saying if you sin, it's okay because grace covers it. He's saying, if you sin, turn to Jesus. Put your eyes on him. That's because John knows that it is only in seeing Jesus for who he truly is that sin starts losing its appeal big time and leads us to repentance. Turn your mind's eye to Jesus. He is advocating for you. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. He is standing in your place. If you're still struggling with this, whether or not this is really true or not, or that I've gone too far, (laughs) I know I'm running a little long, but this is important here. I want you to think about this. Fallen humans are natural self-advocates. We self-exonerate, self-defend, self-excuse all the time. I mean, you don't have to teach a child how to make up excuses for when they're caught misbehaving. That's in them from the jump. They're born knowing how to do that. There is something in our fallen nature that kicks in every time wanting to explain why something is not our fault. We always find reasons for why something that we did really isn't that bad. We minimize, we excuse, and what we probably do more than all of them is that we compare ourselves to somebody that we think is worse. At least I'm not like that fool. In other words, we speak in our defense and advocate for ourselves all the time. But what if we never needed to do that because someone else decided to do that for us? 
What if that advocate knew how messed up we really are and yet was still able to make a better defense for us than we could ever make for ourselves? Not shifting blame, not giving an excuse, but simply pointing to his sufficient suffering and sacrifice in our place. What if? We'd be free. We'd be completely free from feeling the need to defend ourselves or try to build up our self-worth, feeling like we need to prove ourselves or convince others that we're good enough while we know deep down that we're not. We don't have to wonder what if because that is the case. There is someone who stands in our defense, interceding and advocating for us, not just when we fall, but especially when we fall. I'm going to close by just reading one more text to you. I'm not even going to expound on it or explain it. I'm just going to finish by reading it and letting it speak for itself. It's Romans 8, which I think does the best job of telling us what it means for Jesus to be interceding for us like this. Starting in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Look who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. And so he's in this chaos of this broken world and the pain and the suffering and the loneliness that we face face somebody is interceding for us and what does that mean verse 37 but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us for i'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus man Don't light your fire. I don't know what else to say. I don't know anything better. There's no better good news than that. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. God, the only response I can think of